It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. You are Locked On Raptors, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to episode number 328 of Locked On Raptors for Saturday, May 5th. I'm your host, Sean Woodley of LockedOnRaptors.com and RaptorsHQ.com. You can find me on Twitter, as always, at WoodleySean. Find the show at Locked On Raptors. We can find links to every single episode. Of course, make sure you're checking out the Locked On Podcast Network, team-focused shows for all 30 NBA teams. Great local angles on all the biggest stories, all the series going on right now, all the teams dealing with off-season stuff and trade possibilities and free agent questions. If you're interested in a specific team, find the show that corresponds to that team and uh, support the host. You can subscribe, rate, review to those shows, and also Locked On Raptors on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all the places where you find your podcasts. And uh, it's very much appreciated if you just leave a little note and some stars. It's uh, it's helpful, it's free to do, and it very much helps with iTunes' algorithms or whatever the hell. Uh, Um, So thank you so much in advance for doing that. And uh, let's get to the show. On today's show, I'm joined by one of the the only Noble Cavs writers, I think. Uh, We've had Justin Rowan on the show far too many times. Uh, So glad to get a reprieve from that with our friend uh, Mike Zavagno from Beer the Sword. How's it going, man? It's going well. How are you? Ah, been better, been worse. It's a... I think I've reached the acceptance stage of what's happening right now, and I just wrote today actually about LeBron and just sort of the crushing inevitability that he brings, and uh, I've made my peace with it. So uh, (laughs) with that in mind, we're going to look ahead to tonight's game. Game three uh, goes at 8.30 tonight in Cleveland. Uh, Raptors down 0-2, of course, after that uh, disastrous game two loss that we went into on yesterday's podcast. Um, we're just going to kind of look at what maybe the Raptors can do, what the Cavs have been doing, and sort of try to gauge what's going to happen in Game 3 tonight. Uh, Mike, how are you feeling as like someone who follows and covers the team and is clearly a fan of the team? Like, Is this something that you expected, that the Cavs were going to come out and just look this dominant? I, I mean, Game 1 wasn't dominant by any means. Let's Maybe we should just leave it for Game 2 um, in terms of the dominance conversation. But did you expect the Cavs to come out and look this comfortable, this different from what they did in the first round? Um, to a degree, yes, and to a degree, no. I mean, I certainly wasn't expecting um, you know, all kinds of doom. Uh, you know, heading into Game Three with the Cavs being up 2-0, mm-hmm. I thought they would probably uh, look better in Game Two than they did in Game One, just because of the quick turnaround after the Pacers series. But you know, the the difference I think that I saw on film, most importantly, uh, between Indiana and Toronto was just how wide open the games were going to be on offense. You know, Indiana, very physical team, switching everything. Uh, versus kind of Toronto's more drop scheme in the pick and roll, uh, not really switching everything, uh, didn't really have a guy that could kind of mirror what Thad Young was doing to Kevin Love. So I certainly expected a more offensive affair, but you know nothing like what, what we saw with the Cavs posting you know 140 offensive rating in Game 2. Yeah, I mean, the Raptors' offense has been mostly fine so far. I mean, they shot 50-40-90 in Game 2 and still lost by 18. I think the defense is definitely where it kind of fell apart. And it is the defense, it's, I don't know, whatever mental barrier there might be there that you want to ascribe to the Raptors. And, like, 
honestly, at this point, I, I can't even fault them. Um, just with LeBron especially coming out in that second half, hit like seven, you know, turnaround, 20-foot faders over OG Ananobi, and it's like, what what the hell are you even supposed to do? Uh, LeBron said today, just like a little, uh, like half an hour ago or so, I guess, doing shoot-around, saying how like two points isn't just two points, and I, I totally agree. Those, those buckets completely deflated anything that the Raptors might have been able to sort of mount as a comeback in that game. I thought DeMar DeRozan did a good job late and sort of has, has done a good job for most of the series in attacking the rim and sort of being persistent and not just like getting passive when things go poorly, but there's only so much that can really carry you to. Um, let's get to towards tonight's game. There was a little bit uh, during Dwayne Casey's post-game uh, press conference in Game 2, he was talking about Serge Ibaka and how poorly he's played. Uh, and he's been awful. He has been... Uh, so, somehow, Eric Kareen from The Athletic just tweeted out that uh, Ibaka has the best net rating on the Raptors in this series, which seems unbelievable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I guess he's been out there for some of the better stretches. He got benched in the second half of Game 2. I don't know, sort of... <sighs> He's kind of hamstringing everything, right? Because he's gonna he was in theory on paper supposed to be part of a lot of the best lineups the Raptors could use to counteract when the, the Cavs go small. That's probably not gonna be the case. If you're Dwayne Casey and you're looking at sort of how the roster is, is structured right now and who's playing well and who's not, and just sort of what the Cavs are throwing out there with that small starting five that they stuck with in game two. What do you do in terms of a lineup for tonight? Do you just stick with what's worked and sort of hope that maybe the game one you know, run of things replicates itself where the Raptors were able to punish them not being super aggressive in getting Kevin Love open and Love missing some shots and, you know, they were able to sort of press the advantage of being huge against against the Cavs or do you try to switch it up, go small and sort of be more reactionary to what the Cavs did in game two? Yeah, you know, I, I thought that uh, I was actually looking at the same thing today with Ibaka and saw that he was only a minus three in the series. <laughs> and I guess that it you know has to do with the fact that he was benched in that second half of game two before things could really get out of hand for, for him. But um, I, I was talking to Blake Murphy, too, about this, and I thought that one of the options that I think that the Raptors have that they haven't really shown much of yet is trying to go to... Ananobi at the four and then playing three smalls um they tried to do it with CJ Miles but you know when you're keeping Miles out there and having him guard Kevin Love uh with you know see there's a lot of it with just Siakam with Ananobi's foul trouble in in the second half of game two that I don't think that that's really a successful route the Cavs have really taken advantage of Miles basically every time he's been on the floor as soon as he comes in he's immediately in the pick and roll with LeBron uh, and the Cavs know that they're not going to switch that. And if they do, that LeBron can go right downhill at him. He got an M1 in that way uh, in game two. And I think that, you know, maybe you look at Fred Van Vliet as that third guy. Um, you know, you're not really concerned as much with the Cavs going big. Uh, as long as you can have Ananobi on LeBron and even, you know, Siakam or JV or Abaka at the five um, on Kevin Love, you can pretty much deal with. You know, DeRozan on Corver maybe, and then you know Hill and Hill and Smith can be taken care of by Van Vliet and Lowry. So that was a lineup that I thought might have some success. I think that you have to keep Ananobi on James as much as possible. He's really uh, hurt Siakam a good degree in the first two games, but you know Ananobi looks like he can cover him uh, better than anybody on the roster. So I think that some some iteration of playing him at the four might be more successful. 
We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire. You need Indeed. Yeah, I think I'm with you. Uh, I think we saw a little bit of it in game two, maybe, but I can't really recall the exact lineups right now. But yeah, I I think that makes some sense. Honestly, today I was kind of kicking around the idea because of how bad Love kind of burned Jonas in the last game. Like, there were a few examples where, like, Corver would set a pin down for for Love, and, like, JV was just completely lost, unable to get out to the perimeter to to even sort of feign a contest, and Love kind of ate that way. Um, I almost wonder if maybe you go just, like, super-duper small. Maybe not to start, but if it's giving you problems, and if Jonas can't stick with JV, or stick with Love, maybe you just go Siakam at the 5 next to OG, and, and like... You're probably going to get torched on the boards, but maybe you don't. Like, OG's been a decent rebounder, especially in the playoffs. Siakam, I think, is kind of an underrated rebounder. He's not physical in the way JV is, but, like, I feel like that might be a path to sort of opening up a bit more switchability on defense if you want to go that route. Um, and also just like having your best defenders on the floor at all times is is not a bad idea, especially if you're not going to sacrifice too much offense, which... I know Jonas has been really good in this series, and I I think he's a better playmaker in the, on the short roll than, than say Siakam would be. But I think Siakam has some chops there. Um, he's a pretty good passer. He's you know he's got a little push shot that uh, has been pretty successful this season. I feel like there's some sort of room for him there to maybe operate a little bit, and maybe that mitigates the his lack of shooting because the Cavs don't really care when they stick him in the corner. But if he's making those plays in the short roll, maybe that utilizes his talent a little bit better. Um, what do you think about that? Is that too small a look for the Raptors to throw at the Love at Five look? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, you know, part of what Indiana was able to do successfully against the Cavs was hide Miles Turner on J.R. Smith. But, you know, JV, I don't think, has kind of the athleticism and the weak side abilities to really succeed in that matchup. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, when he is guarding Kevin Love, like you said, we've seen him really struggle with a lot of the pin down actions the Cavs are running on the weak side. Uh, you know, he's been switched on to Kyle Korver a few times, and Korver has gotten open threes. And so, it makes it difficult for him to really have a place out there when, you know, Tristan Thompson or Jeff Green aren't on the floor defensively. And one of the ways, again, that Indiana was really successful is that they just mucked everything up. They were extremely physical. And you could see Siakam and OG kind of being able to fill those roles that Thad Young and Bogdanovich filled, uh, being really physical and aggressive, uh, being able to switch that uh, 4-5 pick and roll between LeBron and Love and not really, you know, being too compromised. Um it's possible that you're giving up something offensively for sure. I mean, the Cavs really haven't been guarding Siakam or OG on the offensive end to, to the most part. But I think that you've, you've experimented with playing this wide-open game for essentially the last four matchups, and it just really hasn't worked. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the Cavs just get open three after open three basically whenever they want. So if I'm Toronto, I think I'm going into this game trying to make it much more of a defensive struggle um, really trying to be physical with the Cavs. If you can switch stuff defensively, I would be switching a lot. And I think that that is kind of the the route that you need to take to better mess up some of this game than just trying to go shot for shot with the Cavs because you just don't really have the shooters to be able to stick with LeBron and Korver and, and Love and Smith, etc. 
How much has what the Raptors like? I'm curious because I didn't get to watch as much of the Cavs Pacers series as I would have liked because a lot of the games were happening the same days as Raptors games. Um, but like I watched it and I don't know. Like I feel like a lot of the Cavs role guys were getting looks in, in that series, whether it was Love or Jr. or, or Corver or whoever. Like I feel like the, the similar sort of gravity that LeBron creates. Like as much as you try to stay true and only guard him one on one and stick to other shooters. Like, eventually, your temptations are going to sort of get the best of you, and you're going to send extra help, and that's where he's going to pick you apart because he's LeBron James. Um, but so how big of a difference and how much different is this this series and the Pacers series just because of the role guys hitting shots? Yeah, I think it's definitely different. Um, you know, obviously, a lot of the, the role guys have really stepped up so far in this series in terms of their ability to hit shots from the outside. But I do think that a lot of it, comes from a scheme difference um you know like i said i mean the pacers really switch everything um they're mm-hmm. able to basically have bodies uh you know on the calves at all times we've seen some of the the guard for guard screens uh get you know kyle corver or jr smith open threes in this series and that was basically shut down because the pacers would just switch that action a lot in the last series and you know i think that a lot of it just the drop scheme that the Raptors run is something that LeBron's consistently taken advantage of for, you know, many years now where if you're going to drop that big way back, it just gives him a lot of space to either find a shooter or, you know, make a move at the rim. And he was real, you know, really passive against it in game one. I thought that his legs were, were pretty tired, but he took advantage of it well in game two. And with the Pacers switching, I think that that just wasn't really an available option as much, uh, especially for some of the other guys coming off screens. There just wasn't a lot of space on the floor, and everything felt really shrunken down. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late-season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yeah, I thought you had a really good thread yesterday about um, sort of the comparisons between the Rockets and the Raptors and how they've kind of gone about building their teams in the face of like this this monster in their, in their respective conferences. And the Rockets kind of designed their team specifically tailored towards beating the Warriors, as you laid out. They, they switch everything. Uh, they have enough offensive firepower, in theory, to keep up with them. And whereas the Raptors, their defensive scheme, it works really well for the regular season. They were a great defensive team in the regular season. Uh, and I think, more more importantly, it works for Jonas Valanciunas, who, in a more aggressive, like, high-hedging scheme in the past, he's been, you know, kind of you know, just left out to dry and has not been able to sort of hang it there, hang there. And I think this time around with this defense this season, we saw Jonas have his best defensive seasons. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Like, I think that that's very much a product of the defensive system they ran. Um, so I kind of... I don't even know what you do because how do you sort of build a defense when some of your best players or some of the guys that you're sort of built on just aren't really conducive to playing that style of defense? And like, how do you trade off trying to be really good in the regular season versus building towards, you know, this one opponent that you're almost certainly going to come across in the playoffs? And I don't know, I have a hard time because like, I, I really enjoyed this Raptors regular season and I don't like sort of looking at it as though it was some sort of failure because they didn't, you know, style themselves 
specifically to beat LeBron. But at the same time, maybe that is some sort of organizational failure where it says like, yeah, you were really good and you were good enough to beat most of the teams, but the one that sort of tormented you the last couple of years, you, you couldn't design something to beat him. And at the same time, it's like even if they did try to design a defensive scheme that could beat LeBron James, there's a good chance LeBron just beats it anyway and you lose regardless. So I don't know. like it's so That's such a hard thing for me to gauge. And I, I, don't, I don't even really have a question for you. I just I thought it was an interesting point that you made. Yeah, I mean, I think that you look at this, um, you know, the drop scheme essentially that the the Raptors are playing, and you can draw some parallels to the Trailblazers uh, Pelican series, mm-hmm. where the Pelicans, uh, you know, shot seventy two percent in the restricted area against Portland. Portland was the single best team defending the rim in the regular season, only giving up fifty five percent shooting. You know, Toronto comes in number two, giving up fifty nine percent shooting at the rim in the regular season. So far through two games, the Cavs are shooting sixty seven percent at the rim in the series, mm-hmm. and, and so I think that you know, you 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 look at Nurkic and you look at JV as these guys who are huge bodies. You drop them back at the rim in the regular season. You force a lot of guys into more mid range shots, more of those floaters. Um, but you kind of get into the postseason and you face these athletic monsters, whether it's Anthony Davis, whether it's LeBron James. And, you know, a lot of that is kind of negated by their ability to just finish through contact and, and go through guys at the rim. And so I think that, you know, playing that drop scheme is a great way to protect guys like that and, you know, put them in a position to succeed. But when you look at some of these playoff matchups, it, it makes it more difficult to deal with these kind of, you know, singular athletic talents. Yeah, I kind of wonder, and I think I talked about this on yesterday's show, um, for people who are listening and saying that I'm repeating myself. I do that all the time anyway. Uh, it's a daily show, man. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to repeat myself. But I kind of wonder, just like, you know, we made so much of how good the bench was this season and how, you know, the, the youth was so f- much further along than we would have expected. And I think you're kind of, maybe we underestimated just how much it takes to be ready to take on LeBron James in a series and sort of... The, the refinement that you have to have as a defender. And, and I think we've seen with Jakob Pertl, for example, he just has been lost defensively so far this in, in these playoffs. And, you know, Pascal Siakam just doesn't have the, the strength to stay in front of LeBron as fast as he is. And it, as good a job as he did on John Wall for spurts in the last series, John Wall is not LeBron. And, you know, even OG, he's made a few mistakes. He had a couple of sort of hiccups that looked a little bit rookie-ish um, in game two as well, mostly on offense for him. But still, like, I think... Maybe we underestimated just how important it is to have guys who are seasoned and who know have faced the LeBron task before. I, I mean, it's nice to not be scared of him and sort of go into it being like, hey, we can beat this guy. We don't know any better. But maybe it is better to know better, um, if that makes any sense, if that's a proper use of English. Um, to just like to know just everything that everything about the guy and, and sort of have the experience of him destroying you to try to find ways to alter it. I just, they're young, man. They're, they're young dudes who I think three or four years from now are probably more equipped for this, but maybe it's just, we, we sort of projected too much upon them too, too soon. Yeah. And I mean, I think that again, you know, if I'm Dwayne Casey and I'm looking at game three, um, I, I do like the idea that, that you tossed out there to play Siakam at the five, uh, you know, OG at the four, maybe Van Vliet, DeRozan, Lowry in the backcourt, something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, just try to get 
physical, um, you know, try to switch almost everything as much as you possibly can. You know, obviously you don't want to get stuck with Lowry or Fred Van Vliet on LeBron in the post, but, you know, being able to switch that four five action with love and, and LeBron, um, you know, you, you can trust OG to handle love in the post decently well, uh, trust Siakam to kind of deal with LeBron on the perimeter. I think that that's really important when you're facing the Cavs. Uh, you know, you hope that OG and, and Siakam can be quite physical and you just try to slow things down. I mean, the Cavs don't want to necessarily play that fast anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you can kind of make them run through actions by switching things and, and make them play later in the shot clock, I think that the Pacers had great success. There was a game in the first round where the Cavs took 16 shots um, when there are four or fewer seconds on the shot clock. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the type of defense that, that you want to play as opposed to just kind of, you know, letting them operate in this wide open game where LeBron's basically picking and choosing what's going to happen on every offensive possession. Yeah, uh, he is a problem. <laughs> Hot take, LeBron James is good at basketball. <laughs> um, yeah, it, so looking ahead to game three tonight, uh, I'm sure the Cavs are pretty heavy favorites. I don't have the numbers in front of me. Um, do you think there's any way the Raptors can pull one out here? Like, What would have to happen? What's the, like, the blueprint here? for the Raptors to make this something of a series, even though we probably know that even if they win, it's not really going to be a series? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that that is the the first thing, just, you know, stronger commitment to, to making things harder on offense for the Cavs. I mean, if you look, like you said, at the top, the Raptors' offense has been great in this series. Um, the Cavs switched a bit in the second half of Game 2. Uh, they were blitzing DeRozan. Uh, you know, I said before the series that that was not going to be a successful strategy with how DeRozan has really matured as a passer this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Raptors scored two points per possession uh, when the Cavs blitzed him. Uh, so clearly that that was not a successful strategy they they went to a more traditional drop scheme in the second half of game two I thought that that worked much better uh, they had a 105 defensive rating in that second half and you know I think that a lot of it was just them being able to kind of keep things in front of them a little bit better uh, funnel shots to the right shooters as opposed to DeRozan you know kind of being able to pass it immediately to the roll man and then them getting a wide open shot we saw CJ Miles hit one in front of the Cavs bench early in that third quarter and, and so I do think that there there are some changes for the Raptors now that they know that the Cavs probably won't come out and blitz uh, the Cavs also stopped switching the, the DeRozan-Lowry actions where mm-hmm. DeRozan was really taking advantage of Hill in the post and so I think that you just have to you know stay committed to your principles know that the Cavs defense is much more likely to break down um, you know the longer that you kind of run through an offensive possession the more actions that you have uh, I'd be interested in putting, you know, Kyle Lowry as the ball handler in the pick and roll a little bit more uh, as opposed to DeRozan because I think that you trust him a little bit more to kind of put pressure on the defense with the, his pull-up jump shot, especially from three. If you're going to see the Cavs in kind of a deep drop scheme, uh, especially with Kevin Love at the center, you might be able to take advantage of that. And, you know, just, just continue to run through actions because the, the Cavs are more likely to defend for 12 seconds than they are for 24 yeah, the Lowry initiating a little bit more often has kind of been a thing I've been on about all year, but that's not really how they've played. But yeah, hopefully that's an adjustment they'll make. And, uh, you know, it, it's 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 a tough one because having DeRozan work off ball is less you know dangerous than having Kyle Lowry work off ball. But I think in the interest of, like you said, maybe being able to take advantage of Kyle's shooting, which has been 
rock solid in this series. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, maybe that's something you can do. Also, uh, a plea to Ty Lue, please play Jordan Clarkson more. Um, that would be nice. The Raptors will win yeah. if that happens. Um, yeah. Mike? Yeah, and, sorry, go ahead. Well, the, I was just going to say that that's a change that Indiana made in the first round, too, is that they recognized that the Cavs were, you know, in their traditional coverage against uh, Darren Collison in the pick and roll, mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of changing their coverage to a more blitz-heavy scheme against Old Depot. And the Pacers essentially said, okay, we're going to take Old Depot, we're going to place him off the ball more, we're going to put the ball in Collison's hands, not because Collison's a better player, because we trust him more, but just because the Cavs are so much worse in their traditional pick-and-roll coverage than they were in that blitz. And so the Pacers really had some success by just giving Collison the ball and and letting him operate in the pick-and-roll. And I think that, you know, that's something that can kind of be mirrored by Lowry here. Yeah, uh, good points all. Mike, uh, you are much smarter than I, so glad I could have you on the show to break down what to expect uh, from tonight's game. Where can people check out you and your work? Uh, just find me at msvagno11 on Twitter. i uh, be doing the film threads after the games, and then uh, over at Fear the Sword every once in a while, I'll uh, find some time to write something as well. Fantastic, man. Uh, if the series goes longer, which I don't know if it will, uh, we'll have to have you on again. If not, uh, enjoy watching LeBron kick the shit out of the Celtics or whoever it's in, whoever it is in the next round. Uh, all right. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Take it easy, man. Hey, Prime members. You can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.